friends, my name is Brian James Polak, and this is The Subtext Podcast. The Subtext is a podcast where two playwrights talk about life, playwriting, and what makes us tick. It's brought to you monthly by American Theatre Magazine, a program of Theatre Communications Group. This month, I speak with two-time Pulitzer-winning playwright Lynn Nottage. I feel unbelievably fortunate to be able to speak with Lynn for an hour because she is currently in the midst of the busiest theater season in her career. She opened three shows within weeks of each other back in the fall. Clyde's, the opera adaptation of her play Intimate Apparel, and MJ the Musical. She is currently nominated for multiple Tony Awards, including Best Play for Clyde's and Best Book for a Musical for MJ. She also teaches full-time, so I honestly can't believe she even had an hour free for me. If you are new to the subtext, please check out our archives. We've been doing this monthly since January of 2018, and there are a lot of awesome conversations in the archives, which you can find at americantheater.org. You can subscribe to the pod through Apple Podcasts or wherever it is you prefer to find your pods. And if you're on the social media, you can find us on Insta, Twitter, and Facebook. Email us, thesubtextpodcast at gmail.com, or give us a call at 505-302-1235. Your message might be used on a future episode. Lynn Nottage is an American playwright whose work often focuses on the experience of black working-class people. She has received the Pulitzer Prize for Drama twice, in 2009 for her play Ruined, which is one of the all-time great pieces of theater I have ever witnessed. And also in 2017 for her play Sweat. She is the first and currently only woman to have won the Pulitzer Prize for Drama two times. She is the recipient of a MacArthur Genius Fellowship and was included in Time Magazine's 2019 list of the 100 Most Influential People. Lynn and I talk about attending grad school, learning from Paula Vogel, finding your voice, and about that time she was locked in the Lincoln Center bathroom. This conversation was recorded on Friday, May 27th, 2022 on the Zoom. accomplished and you've won many awards but the thing I want to talk about first is the time you got locked in the Lincoln Center bathroom oh I just think it's the greatest story ever and I was following in real time on Twitter yeah it was kind of a strange surreal moment because I was um in the midst of an interview for Intimate Apparel the Opera and um, I excused myself literally to go put on some lipstick. I went into the Lincoln Center bathroom, which is in the, the, the main lobby of the Vivian Beaumont. And as I entered, the door closed behind me and um, locked and it was completely dark. And I thought, oh my goodness. And strangely in that bathroom, they have no handles. <laughs> And no way to get out. And I thought, who designs a bathroom that you can get into, but you can't get out of? I mean, really. And I didn't have my cell phone. All I had was my iPad with me. And I literally had like one second of of juice. And I thought, 
I don't know who to call to get me out of here. And I, I just tweeted it out. I'm locked in the bathroom. If you get this message, <laughs> come find me. And what was strange is that the people who um, were doing the interview, like no one came to look for me. No one wondered, where's Lynn Nottage? Why hasn't she come back? She said she'd be back in one second. <laughs> and, and it took someone who had seen the message from, I think, another building <laughs> to come over and let me out of the bathroom. But it was a strange, surreal moment. Do you have and a went viral? Have... I made TMZ. <laughs> it you know, was on they, TMZ too. It was on TMZ, and they found the most disturbingly odd, distressed picture of me on the internet to include <laughs> the story. Oh man, I remember being on Twitter, and people from all over the place were like, "Save this person!" <laughs> I okay. know it's, it's it was madness. Uh, did you get uh, public restroom PTSD after that? Um, no, but the next time I did go into that bathroom, I made sure that the door was propped open. <laughs> uh, and did it? Did you? When you returned back to the meeting, did anybody even? Yeah, it was that? like I was locked in the bathroom. People, why didn't anyone come <laughs> rescue me? You know, they just thought Lynn Nottage changed her mind and wandered off. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which would be hilarious. Like, don't say anything. Just walk away from the beating. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I don't want to do this interview. I'm just going to wander off. Right, right. Have you ever had an interview where you're like, you wanted to walk away? Oh, my God. Yes, I've had multiple. I've actually been on live television. Um there was one interview that I did where we were talking very um, nicely about my play and then suddenly they wanted me to become a political commentator and talk about Joe Biden and the election. I thought, well, um, I'm a playwright. <laughs> I'm not a political commentator. And um, I actually, at that time, didn't know a whole hell of a lot about Joe Biden's personal life and everything that was going on in, um, with him. And I literally just went to take off my microphone and walk away. But I winged it. Mm -hmm. And you wouldn't have known. <laughs> oh, good. Good. Does it does this uh, doing interviews and being on on television? Is that comfortable for you? Like, like, is it old hat now that you've done it so many times? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I think that the nature of playwrights, I, I I wouldn't say all playwrights because there are playwrights who really do love this kind of public space. But I think that we're introverts, extroverts, and we like to choose the times when we're in the public realm. And I think that for me, it's been a journey trying to figure out how to negotiate the public side of self, because what I love is sitting at my computer and being in rehearsal and being in dialogue with other creatives, which I find more challenging is when I'm asked suddenly to become the public Lynn Nottage, and I'm asked questions that often feel um, leading and not necessarily in full conversation with who I am as an artist and full conversation who, uh, of who I am as a, a being. And I find those spaces um, very difficult to mm -hmm. inhabit and negotiate. Mm -hmm. were, you, were you similar when you were uh, a child? Like, were you introverted when you were young? Uh, yeah, you know, I, it's, 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 I would say, once again, I'm an introvert extrovert. Is that... Mm -hmm. 
I, as a kid, I cherished my quiet time. Um, I loved to read books. I was perfectly content sitting in my room with, with a novel and spending half the day there. But I also was perfectly content to go outside and play in the street in front of my house with the other kids and to have those conversations. So I, I, I dwelled in those two spaces, but I would say that I tend to be more reserved and shy and, um, um, yeah, more revert, yeah, more introverted than extroverted. Mm-hmm. But I am not afraid to be in open spaces. And I think for me, it took a really long time to feel 100% comfortable um, fully occupying the, the, the space that a playwright, sort of my stature, is supposed to mm-hmm. occupy, which is like sitting on the podium and um, talking about craft and and feeling comfortable being that authoritative voice. I mean, it really took me a long time to grow into that position um, in ways that I could fully embrace. And I think it's only now, after winning all these awards and having um, all this adulation that I've come to realize that I really um, shouldn't be afraid to take space mm-hmm. <laughs> because I've earned th- that right. Mm-hmm. And, um, that's that's on me on no one else i mean and i also think some of it's generational is that it's been a really long and hard fight for a black woman in theater to um, be able to assert our voices i remember when i first started out that um we, we couldn't even get to the main stages of theaters in new york city um let alone um regional th- theaters is that we were always you know to ask to sit to the far left of the stage as opposed to the center of the 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 stage and when that happens so often you know you naturally gravitate to that side of the stage i remember doing a production of ruined in chicago and there was an actress who was playing the lead role and every time we'd block her, she just instinctively moved from the center of the stage to mm. the side. And finally, the director said to her, it's like, you are the lead in this play. You can go right to the center of the stage and occupy it and say every single line from there if you want. And what we realized is that she was so used to being marginalized um, that it had become um, second nature and that she really had to unlearn all of the things um, that she had um, had been thrust upon her throughout her career in order to inhabit that space, um, center stage. And I think that part of the journey that I've taken is doing that as well. Mm-hmm. Do you remember the first time you were in that position where you decided to you know, take center stage, metaphorically speaking? You know, I, I can't, I can't t- tell you um, the first time that I did it, I, I can say, you know, there are a number of moments in which I thought, oh, yeah, here, um, this is the podium, you know, speak a little louder, <laughs> you know, fill your lungs to full capacity and let all of that breath out. Um, I, I was invited to be a speaker at um, a conference of black w- women playwrights. And when I looked out at that room and there were just hundreds of women there, I thought, oh, and I was at the podium giving the keynote address, I thought, oh, this is where I belong and that I do have something to say. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was interesting that it took sort of 
that organization to give me the power to take my own power. Mm -hmm. But great that the moment happened. It did mo yeah, the moment yeah. happened. So uh, as a young person, you know, reading books, uh, what triggered the, the writing? Um, it, 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 that's always a hard question because I think it's like, why does one choose to do what one does? And I don't think that it's as intentional and deliberate as that. I think that, um, it's, it's gradual. It's a process of wanting to be in conversation with the mm. books that I read mm. is feeling like, oh, I have stories. What is that sensation of telling my own stories and putting them on the page and then discovering that one could do that. One could take those thoughts and those conversations that are going on in one's head and place them on a page and then share that page with other people and they respond. And I think that that's sort of the, the, the process that I went, went through is just first wanting to unburden my own um, brain mm. is to mm -hmm. release all of these characters and people and who were talking to me onto the page. And then once I realized I could do that, more voices entered and I thought, oh, this is, this is the, the journey of a, a writer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it's a constant replenishing and a constant conversation, not just with your audience, but with yourself. Because, mm -hmm. you know, you have these questions and you have um, these landscapes that you wanted to tra travel to. How did it become theater? How did it become playwriting that was the form you, you connected to? Um, I, I've, I've thought a lot about this because I, you know, when I was initially asked this question, you know, had one sort of pat answer. And over time, I've really more fully understand why theater. And I think it has a lot to do. And I've spoken of, of, about this um, more recently with the fact that I grew up in a, in a household where my mother was a school teacher. And at the end of the day, she'd come home, she'd kick off her shoes, she'd invite all the other women who were school teachers or women who lived in the neighborhood to sit around our kitchen table and they had this huge jug of mandavi red wine and they would drink and tell stories and that's the way they released whatever they were feeling you know whether it be exhaustion or frustration or you know jo joy and my grandmother also would come over she my grandmother was at our house every single day and um, she was a great raconteur and she could make people laugh and I think that that space became my first theater because I grew up in an era where as a child you were told um, you know you can be there but you have to remain silent <laughs> and so there was this urge to desperately be part of that conversation but I discovered that I was their audience <laughs> that in some ways I was there to witness and I love that space. And I think that my entire career has been in some ways trying to replicate that experience mm -hmm. of, of, of being in a, in, in a safe space where people could share stories and exchange stories and laugh and cry. Mm -hmm. Were you going to theater when you were uh, growing up? Um, I did. I grew up in, in New York City. Um, I grew up in a moment when there was an abundance of theater that was close by. Um, I live in Borum Hill, 
Brooklyn and, you know, there was theater in downtown Brooklyn. There was theater at the Billy Holiday Theater in Bed-Stuy. And then there was a lot of theater downtown in downtown Manhattan. And so it was very easy for my parents to look at the newspaper and find something that would be appropriate or perhaps not appropriate for a child to go to. And so I feel blessed that from probably the time I was five years old, mm-hmm. I went to the theater. It was predominantly um, black theater. It was places like um, the Negro Ensemble, Billy Holiday Theater, um, New F- Federal. And so I felt like um, in one way or another, I was always in conversation with the forum. Mm. Do you remember the, the, the first theater pieces that really uh, stuck with you? Well, I, uh, you know, I, I, I've talked about this very first theater piece that I remember was a puppet show called Succotash on Ice, which was, you know, about talking corn and lima beans. And I just remember that wonderful sensation of the refrigerator opening and the lima beans and the corn being in conversation and thinking this is magic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and how is it happening? And wanting just to occupy that space forever where vegetables can talk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so that was my first actual memory of being in a theater. But then I have other flashes of memory, but you know, the memory's in, in, imperfect. Um, and as I get older, it's like there are things that I forget. Um, but I think that the first piece of theater that made an enormous impression when I was an age um, in which I could receive it um fully was um Zoo Man and the Sign by Charles Fuller starring Giancarlo Exposito mm. I was in high school and I remember going to see it three times and like you know going with my friend um Marilyn and then going with uh, I think it was my friend Alexis and just having this incredible experience in in the theater and the fact that the tickets were cheap enough for us who babysat and worked in boutiques on the weekends to to pay for them ourselves. Mm. Um, But I had seen musicals, you know, I'd seen The Wiz and I'd seen um, Hello, Dolly. I remember going to see shows at Jones Beach when they did them outside. Um, But but the first thing that made a real impression was Zuman and Sign. Mm -hmm. And were you, so you were in high school at the time? I was in high school. Were you... uh... Were you invested in your writing, like in being a writer at that point in your life? Um, you know, I, I wrote. I don't know that I was invested in being a writer. I don't know that I ever at that moment thought, oh, this is going to be my career. But I, I was interested in writing and not just in playwriting. I wrote sh- short stories. And I also, from probably the time I was maybe a sophomore in high school, I worked first in a newspaper called the phoenix which was a local newspaper here and um so i i spent a lot of time at the little typewriters that they had conjuring words mm-hmm. <laughs> that get, got published and there's always something really exciting even if it was just a paragraph of seeing your byline and and you know the schedule of events <laughs> that you mm-hmm. would make in your own own words. And so I think perhaps I was more invested in seeing that than I was in being a playwright, because I didn't know at that time that that's the journey I was going to take. 
Right, but the little victories, it's like little those, victories. Yeah. so motivating. You know, it's one of the things that I, I did, and I, I did it at the, the Phoenix, and then later when I was older, I worked at the, the Villagers that um, I'd go down to the precinct and, and find some of the most curious and funny crimes that were committed. <laughs> and so that's what we did. You know, we did. It's like someone stole the woman's left shoe. <laughs> <laughs> and so, I, you know, and I thought that was the first creative writing that I did was figuring out how to make people smile. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. <laughs> Rather than reporting, you know, the ugly crimes is just reporting things that made people smile. Right. Right. So, so when did... When did the playwriting really start for you? Well, the, the playwriting began when I was in, well, the, the, I mean, the playwriting has always, I think, right. been there. It's like I wrote plays that my brother and I performed when we were f five years old. You know, I was, I was probably eight, he was five. And my parents, who were great entertainers, would always indulge us for a few minutes to perform a sketch. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, we'd descend the steps mm -hmm. and, you know, we'd perform and they would very generously offer us laughter and applause and then give us the wave, like, go back, go away. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I think that that's this, when, when, where I also learned how to read your audience. It's like, okay, mm -hmm it's time for us to go. They're not laughing anymore. They're not interested in any anymore. Um, but I think when I formalized the interest in playwriting was very much when I was in high school, I took a, a drama um, course and um, I went to the High School of Music and Art, which is LaGuardia. And during that course, they actually took us to see um, a lot of theater. And then I remember being given a flyer for the Young Playwrights Festival and we were all encouraged to write plays mm. and i wrote a play which was called the darkest side of verona about a um a group of african-american um performers um shakespearean performers who are inadvertently sort of booked on a tour south and just the surprise of the theater owner when they arrive to do romeo and juliet and they're all black mm. um and so it's just about how they felt of, you know, these people, black people from the north going down the south um, to entertain people who don't really, who are not really invested in hearing what they have to say and what they want to do. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I thought it felt very sophisticated at that time. I thought it was was good and, 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 and interesting. And I did not get selected for that. But I was selected to be part of um, a group of four young composers for the only year, I believe, that they did the composer's workshop um, at the Young Playwrights Festival. And so we spent a year in like the Schubert office, me and these three other um, composers, um, writing music and um, talking about the craft of musical theater and actually tracking um, Stephen Sondheim's making of Merrily We Roll Along. And so that was really my first like immersion in theater and uh, le just learning the craft in some sort of formalized well way, even though it was musical theater. And then I continued my interest when I went to college and when I ultimately went on to um, the Yale School of Drama. So before you made that decision to go 
to Yale, like, like, did you sort of like have a moment where you're like, this is, this is what I want to center my life around? You know, it's, it's really interesting because when I first went, I went to Brown University and, um, I, I was always very STEM, (laughs) um, oriented, even though I did write and I was creative and I took, you know, literary classes, my brain just could very easily do math and and science and as a result I got a very big scholarship from Brown to be pre-med even though there's no part of me that said oh I want to be a doctor (laughs) they just decided it's like you have the tools to be a doctor and so I was on that track for a a while and then you know I hit chemistry and I thought oh I don't understand this my brain is like doesn't understand that it doesn't make sense without memorization Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's like Mm -hmm. I kept wanting to parse it out and the teacher's like don't don't worry about why these things happen they just happen and you just have to accept that they happen and i couldn't and it just i wrestled with with that for for forever and and the wrestling made me realize it's like why am i in this space <laughs> there's no part of me that wants to be here what i actually want to what i love doing is writing and and writing plays and putting them up and throughout my time at brown even though there wasn't the invitation to do it, I just did it. And I found spaces to do it. And one of those spaces was um, um, Rights and Reasons Theater, which was run by George Bass, who became sort of a mentor to me and someone who greatly inspired me. Um, and then um, after that, I had the good fortune of taking a course with Paula Vogel. It was her first year at Brown University. And she was the first um, female professor in theater arts who I encountered. And so that was just thrilling unto itself. And she was really encouraging of my writing. And I think it's um, my encounters with her that that first emboldened me to even consider um, playwriting as a possible path. You know, I thought that I would just, because I'd been working at these newspapers, I'd just become a journalist. I thought there's a clear path there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, you know, it's an honorable field. I felt like I had the skills and the, the, you know, the requisite curiosity and intrepidness to be a reporter. And I applied to Columbia School of Journalism, which I got in. And I also applied to the Yale School of, of dr- Drama um, not anticipating that I would get in, and I did, and everyone's like, you have to go. Mm. And so that's, you know, that that is the path. I've spent a little bit of time with with Paula. Uh, I interviewed her for this, and, uh, and I attended a weekend-long bake-off uh, a few years ago when I was in grad school, and there's just something... Uh, magical about being in a room with her like i just i felt like she has this ability to see you in a way that you can't always see yourself and uh i i I talked to her about it and she you you know it's it's hard to it's it's hard to sort of crack it but i wanted to bottle it you know which is why i wanted to talk to her about it and uh, and I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on, on that. Yeah, you know, I, I think that it's it's the energy that she radiates 
is that she is, you know, and, and it's, it's what I call the intangible, is, is that you really can't fully give language to it because it's, it's inexplicable, but everyone recognizes it when you experience it. And I think that she is like a natural born teacher and nurturer, and that just oozes out of her pores and folks gravitate toward that. I mean, I think that there are people who are good teachers, who are good craftspeople, um, um, who can explain in very clear terms how to make a play or, but I, I think that what they don't necessarily have is what um, Paula has in, in abundance is, is, is that nurturing energy mm. is like you, you, what you said is like the ability to make people be seen. But also I think that what Paula is very, very good at is listening. Mm. Mm -hmm. I think that um, she can sit and listen without judgment and meet the writer where they are rather than meeting the writer where she desires them to be. And I think that that's the skill of a good teacher is th that you can see a piece of work and you know that that work is not yet fully realized. And rather than saying it's not fully realized, you can ask all of those questions that help that individual's mind fill up in such a way that they're excited to return to that work and dive in in order to fill in all of the nuance that is missing. And I think that that's one of the skills that a good teacher has, and that's one of the skills that Paula has. Mm, for sure, yeah. So there's so you've probably talked about this before. I know I talk about it frequently with people. There's so many sort of like pros and cons of, of graduate school. And I've heard lots of people talk about the, the good and the bad of Yale in particular. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if there was a uh, expectation that you had going in. Sure. I'm happy to talk about Yale. I mean, you, you asked the question about expectations that I had when I was about to go to graduate school and in particular Yale. And I have to say, I, I didn't have expectations because I literally had no idea what it was going to be. I literally did not know what it meant to go to graduate school for playwriting because I, up until then, didn't know anyone who had. Mm -hmm. And so I went in there completely free of any expectations. But when I arrived, I instantly became overwhelmed because what I realized is that I had not been fully prepared. Um, I was, I went directly from undergraduate to graduate school. I was young when I entered college. So when I got there I was, mm. to graduate school, I was the youngest person in the entire Yale School of Drama. I was in a class with colleagues who in some cases were in their 40s and you know who had had full careers in in either writing or in theater and who you know who'd read an abundance of plays and knew all of the right questions to ask and felt fully formed and had questions about their craft that i didn't even know um how to ask or what to ask and so i think it took 
it took me longer to navigate Yale than some, um, just because I, I was still at the point when I didn't know who I was and what my voice should be. And Yale was not really, um, the right institution to help me find that. When I entered, I was only the second black woman to go through that particular program. Um, all of the professors that I encountered, even though the dean was um, Lloyd Richards, were white men of a certain generation who gravitated to very specific aesthetic, which was not mine. Um, all of the books that I was that were being put in front of me were work that was so alien to my own lived experience. And yet I was told that this is what playwriting is. And so I felt constantly barraged and assaulted um, throughout my entire experience and really felt um, like I had to fight to be seen. And I was really fortunate to have made good friendships with people outside of the Yale School of Drama who were in other, you know, who were in the history department or the complex department who were super brilliant individuals who helped me create a space that felt safe and where we could engage in sort of ideas and discourse that um, fueled my own writing. And I think that I would not have survived if we had not carved out that space, um, which was like a union of graduate students from different, black graduate students from different disciplines because in many cases we found that we were the only ones and so we we all ended up bonding and so the question you also asked is you know graduate school versus non-graduate school you know as traumatic and difficult as the experience was um i felt that there was a great deal of value still in it because it gave me three years to lean into my own voice to um, and to write. Mm -hmm. And I felt like in some ways, um, I flexed my muscles in ways I wouldn't have flexed them if I didn't feel under siege. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I felt like, here I am, I'm going to show you exactly who I am. And so I, I think that I was able to reach for a more authentic voice. Yeah because I felt that no matter what, <laughs> um, they weren't going to celebrate it. And so I thought I have nothing to lose. And then I also discovered the Yale Cabaret, which was a, a space that was curated and produced by um, Yale School of Drama students. And in that space, I could present my work in way in exactly in the way that I want to present it. And each year I presented that work, I was surprised by how well it was received by an audience that in some case was a paying audience that was not just made up of Yale School of Drama playwrights, that there were people who were actually interested and invested in what I had to say. And I think that also emboldened me to push, um, you know, push forward and continue to, to write. Mm -hmm. So do you think, do you think you're writing both in, in, I don't know, in form and in content changed because of that experience? I don't know. You know, I mean, that's such a hard question to ask because I was so young. Mm -hmm. And so 
I was finding form and content in that moment. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, what was there to change? It was, it was evolving, mm-hmm. I think is a better way of thinking about it, is that I was trying to figure out how to inhabit this, the realm of playwriting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what stories can I tell? How many people can I put on stage? Um, you know, does it have to be linear? Can it be non-linear? Is there music? I mean, these were, it was like an, an incubator and this space that I had to ask all the questions that I had of the form. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's what I, I did. Mm-hmm. You know, I had plays that were wild and wacky. I had plays that made my professors angry. I had plays that, you know, delighted folks. I had one play that went so well at the Yale Cabaret that we toured it. <laughs> you know, we went to other universities with the cast. And I thought, oh, we can do this. We can pick up this little piece and tour it around um, and self-produce. <laughs> when, you wrote, when you wrote a play that made your professors angry, uh, where were you in that? I was in my fir- very first year. It was the very first play that I wrote at Yale School of Drama, which, you know, God bless Lloyd Richards, who, you know, is clearly a genius. He he directed the seminal production of A Raisin in the Sun on Broadway and collaborated with Lorraine, Lorraine Hansberry. He formed um, the, you know, he was the artistic director of the Eugene O'Neill Theater Center. And so a great nurturer of playwrights uh, voices. And I wrote my very first play, at the Yale School of Drama, and he hated it. And, you know, he felt it was an embarrassment because it was ambiguous. And I'm someone who, you know, throughout my career has uh, felt comfortable navigating, you know, that gray area and that ambiguity and putting sort of morally complicated people center stage. And I think that for him, he was not used to seeing a black writer do that. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, I think he grew up in a time when writing was, you know, particularly the writing of black artists was mission oriented and, you know, it's to uplift or to illuminate people about, you know, the state of black America where I put a character on stage who didn't do those things and who was not a nice person. And I think that that in some ways challenged him and we had that conversation and um i didn't back down so so that's great because you know you could have gone a lot of different ways because there's oftentimes where you feel like the need to please right to the professor who you admire right so it could have been it could have been a trap for you yeah it's interesting i've never had that impulse i don't know what that says about me <laughs> Yeah, I for it's, sure have that impulse. Like I've yeah, always felt I, I, like I, I'm always I'm. You know, it's like someone was saying, asking me there was some conflict, and I said, you know, I don't like conflict, but I'm not conflict averse. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, if if one has to go there, it's it's like I will go there. I don't necessarily seek it out, and mm-hmm. I didn't think I was seeking it out when I had written this play. But once I did, I felt like, well, I'm not going to back down. And I tried to explain why this character mm-hmm. <laughs> and why I was interested in him and why I had chosen this character who, 
is morally flawed to be the character that I fo focused on. Mm -hmm. Did that experience uh, stay with you in, in the, the work that you did following that? Um, that's a really good qu question. I think that I certainly felt his judgment throughout the entire time I was there. And what I decided is that I couldn't really take on that burden mm -hmm. if I was going to make good use of the program. Mm -hmm. <laughs> How did you navigate coming out of the program? Like what did that first, what did those first few steps look like for you when you finished? Oh. Well, you know, I, I, I came out of, I went to Yale during a very difficult moment. You know, it was the height of the AIDS epidemic. It was the height of the crack ep epidemic and it hit the drama school really hard. You know, there were people who died of drug addiction when I was there. There are people who died of AIDS while I was there. And it's not an experience that you expect to have when you're in school. And so there was a lot of trauma and I felt, you know, it's only now that I've been able to find the language to describe it. And it, I really feel like it was post-traumatic stress disorder mm. to have to be in a space where you're seeing your friends when you're 21, 22 years old dying. And um, when I graduated, I began to question whether theater was indeed what I wanted to do or whether there was a better way for me to use the tools that I had acquired over the years to help people. And so when I left, I actually sold my computer, if you want to call it a computer, it was like a word processor. <laughs> um, and I, I went to work at Amnesty International during a, a, a moment, a key moment in sort of the evolution of the human rights movement. And I was there for four years, um, for formative years, which really in some ways became my second and most important um, graduate experience, experience because it really expanded the world for me in ways that I don't think would have happened if I hadn't worked there. You know, I'd gone from first grade to graduate school straight um, mm. without being in the the world. And so I realized also what, when I graduated is I didn't have a tremendous amount to write about, you know, and I see that sometimes with my students now is that, you know, they're cannibalizing their school experiences because they haven't been in the world, you know, and a lot hasn't happened to disrupt them in ways that become fuel for their own creativity. And so that's what happened when I got out of graduate school is that I collided with life in ways that ended up being very meaningful to, to, to me. And after four years, I was able then to take that experience and return to writing, but return to writing with a much larger um, sense of the world. During those years, were you consciously pausing your writing or? Oh, yeah. So you knew you were going to come back around to I don't know I didn't I didn't know whether I would come back to it okay. you know and I I, I you know I, I still wrote things down I still mm -hmm. thought about storytelling but when I committed and this is just the way I am you know it's like I fully committed and also my job was 
a 24 seven job. I was working from like 10 to 10, um, every, every day. So there wasn't really the room, even if I wanted to write to write. Mm -hmm. And I did a lot of writing on my job. It just was not creative writing. I was writing op-eds and press releases and descriptions. And so my brain was very active and occupied. And so there wasn't room for the kind of, um, imaginary writing, you know, mm -hmm. that one does when you play, write plays. Was there something specific that reconnected you to the playwriting? Um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've spoken this um, about this often. And for, for me, it was a, there, there are a couple of things. I mean, there's one story that's much, much longer. And I, 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 I won't burden you with that, that story. But it just had to do a lot with why I chose to leave working for human rights organizations and why I felt sort of overwhelmed at a a moment, but I think that very specifically, I returned to playwriting when I encountered the um, work of a photographer named Donna Ferrato, who had brought in to the office like late one afternoon, or maybe it was even early evening, this box of photographs of women that she had taken just as they arrived at a battered women's shelter. And I remember like going through these images with one of my colleagues and Donna and which and they were arresting because you know the images ca captured that tension of a woman being in absolute pain but also um, having a tremendous sense of relief and so I thought there was something fascinating about an image that could sustain the complexity of of, of that moment and Donna's like is there something that Amnesty International could do at this particular moment and we had to explain that the organization really was focused on um on um targeting governments or people acting as if governments and holding them accountable and that we didn't work on domestic issues and it had been a huge source of frustration for many of us who really wanted to push um the organization to begin looking more at women's rights as human rights and to look at a, a wide range of gender-specific human rights abuses that were just not covered because of the narrowness of our particular uh, mandate. And so I looked at these pictures and I thought, oh, there's some way I want to respond. And when she left, I literally like closed my office door and I wrote a play. And that play was Poof, which is about you know a woman who's being abused by her husband and it begins in darkness in which um, he yells at her and she and she she shouts go to hell and he spontaneously combusts and when the lights rise he's this pile of ashes with a pair of glasses and she calls her best friend down to her apartment and they discuss what to do um about the pile of ash and in the end they sweep him under the rug and that was the first play that i'd written in years and years and years and it came out very quickly in response to an image and also in that moment what i realized is that there was a way to marry my passion and my purpose that i always assumed it was either or mm. either you do this human rights work or you be a writer and i thought oh you know life is not binary you don't mm -hmm. have to make those choices you, you know both things can be in conversation in one body mm -hmm. did you ever were you were you ever concerned i'm not sure how to frame this one are you ever were you ever concerned in the in your early years about 
the ability to sustain yourself with your writing? Um, yeah, I mean, that's always that's always sort of a struggle and a dilemma. It's like, how does one make a life in an art that pays nothing? <laughs> yeah, can you think you know, back to that time, like, yeah, like? But, but yeah, I can. I can definitely think back to time because I had a long stretch, like ten years, in which yeah. you know I tempted and I you know had a patchwork of of jobs in order to sustain myself. But I am a, a worker. And so I was never afraid about never being able to sustain myself because I know I can always go and get some job. I can work in a coffee shop. I can, you know, I tempt. I was like the Uber temp. I could type 65 words per minute. And so I thought I will always be able to find something. It may not be interesting. It may not be what I want, but I will be able to pay my bills while I'm writing. Um, and I think which is a little different than the approach that young people have today where they think, oh, I have to be inside of the craft and working on something related in craft in order to be doing it. And I think that that was not the case when I came up. You know, there was an assumption when we were young playwrights that we would never make money doing this. And so we had to develop other muscles to sustain, you know, our love. Yeah. And that's why I like to talk about this, like how we sustain ourselves as playwrights, because kind of like you said before, uh, I don't, I don't even really think there is a, you're either in it or you're not. I feel like every job you're doing, everything you do in your life is part of it is a pro is like feeding who you are as the writer, you know, if you're, even if you're office temping, you know, I feel like that's such a healthy and wonderful way of looking at it. And I think it's a hundred percent true. It's like every job you have is, part of your creative process. Every job you have is research for your next play. Mm -hmm. And, I... you know, it's in that way, it allows you not to be anxious about not being inside the playwriting life, mm -hmm. because you're always inside the playwriting life, regardless of what you're doing. Yeah, I was talking to a playwright last year, uh, who was thinking about going to grad school. And so we were they were asking me about you know, my experiences and, and my opinions. And, and uh, they uh, were working as an iron worker in New York. That's their day. And I am so excited about somebody who's working as an iron worker, writing plays, like, yeah, which is great. You're never going to yeah. see like, like plays that we will have never seen before. Right. Coming you bring from that, that person. Yeah, that iron worker perspective, which in, doesn't get on the stage at all, which is super important. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that uh, that a lot of those curious jobs I had in my early career, uh, you know, just helped me better understand the world. And I'm able to conjure such a wide range of characters because I've had such a wide range of experiences. Mm -hmm. You know, I've, yeah. I want to, we have a couple minutes left and uh, I essentially want to bridge the entirety of your career from that 10 year period through to today. Yes. Uh, we won't, but uh, that's essentially my, my want. Uh, but I am, I am obviously very curious and I talk a lot about with when I do these conversations about how playwrights get from A to B, 
you know, because like talking about the jobs and talking about the grad school and the struggle and finding your voice and that kind of thing is, is uh, fascinating to me as I feel like I'm continuously doing that myself. And I know that I'm sort of an avatar for the listeners of this podcast are very much like me engaged in the craft and trying to, you know, break through, et cetera, et cetera. Um, which is why I'm very focused on like, what are those moments for you when, you know, you had the aha moment and when you felt like you had a career going. So in that, that's all preamble for this, in that 10 year period where you were doing, you were, you were the struggling writer and you were getting, you know, trying to get those little successes here and there. Um, did you have a moment where you're like, holy shit, it's all coming together for me? Or was it so like the frog in the water? It's the temperatures rising so slowly you don't feel it. Yeah, it's a, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I wish there was a simple answer to that question. But my, my, my journey has, has been sort of steps up and plateaus steps up um, and plateaus and it it's been a very circuitous long journey i had some success when i was a, a young playwright just after i finished working um in human rights in which i had a few plays that got on stages really quickly and i you know i got married and my mother died and i had a, a child and then i found i had a completely different reality and I had 10 years in which nothing got on stage <laughs> and which I had to think about what do I want to write about and how do I write about and you say aha moment and I really think for me after the death of my mother it refocused what I wanted to write about and the play that I wrote was Intimate Apparel which at the time was unlike any of the plays that people were writing, which I felt was the most radical thing that I could do was write a play that felt like it always existed. Mm. That a play that was about something as radical as love <laughs> um, and um, intimacy. And I thought no one is going to do the, that particular play. And it ended up for two years after it was produced in New York being the most produced play in America. And I think when you talk about the aha, for me, the aha was leaning into my authentic voice and telling a story that I felt very truthful to my own desires as a writer. And I appreciate and like the work that I wrote prior to that, but I think that everything I wrote after it is closer to who I am as an artist. Mm -hmm. And I think that's when my success became is when I was able to lean more absolutely and confidently into my creative desires. That is whether you realize it in the moment or not, or anybody realizes that in the moment, that's such a, like, it is an aha moment and is really vital to our writing to realize that. Yeah, and I think it's it's the hardest thing to do and I see it. Mm. Within my students is that there is a way that they think they should be writing even if they are not conscious that that's what they're doing and it's 
always very beautiful to me when someone breaks through free of all of those expectations and finds something that is so raw and beautiful about their own writing that it opens up a new space of expression. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm also, I, uh, I, I teach like an introduction to playwriting course and I'm sure you experience, I experience this frequently and I'm sure you do as well, where you, because you're bringing in your experience to the classroom, you're seeing something in some students that they don't realize themselves yeah. in their writing. You're like, oh, they hit something and they don't even know it yet. Yeah, you, you know, at the very end of the class, usually, and I'm in the process of doing it now, usually I do it in the, in the, in, within the class, but because I don't know why we somehow didn't get there, this class, there was too much writing, there's too much conversation. But I, I talk to them about their crutches and the things that I feel they're leaning on or the things that they're hiding behind. Mm. And those conversations are always immensely illuminating because in some cases they know and they still can't let them go. But in other cases, they don't realize that they have been hiding behind this huge rock. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and once they move that rock, they're able to see sort of their own potential more clearly. Thank you so much, Lynn, and thank you to Elizabeth, Lynn's assistant, for sticking with me through all the scheduling challenges. This episode was produced and edited by me, KJ Jarbo, as the subtext's associate producer. Thank you to Rob Weiner-Kent, editor-in-chief of American Theatre Magazine. The music from this episode is from Daryl Panza. The theme song for the subtext is Hi by International Pen Pal. Thank you for listening. The play filling me up this month is... When We Breathe by Jay-Z Bates. Simply a stunning, moving, and beautiful work of theatrical poetry. Jay-Z's just the best. 